tell so I'm not a communist and uh, I think that the uh, the uh, red herring and so forth is rather uh, uh, ridiculous to talk into this conversation. And are you a Marxist? Well, I have uh, studied Marxist philosophy, yes, sir, and also other philosophers. But are you a Marxist? I think you did admit on an earlier radio interview that you uh, that you consider yourself a Marxist. Well, I would very definitely say that I uh, I uh, am a Marxist. That is correct. But I, that does not mean, however, that I'm a, a uh, communist. What is the difference between the two? Well, there's a great deal of difference. Several uh, American parties in several countries are based on Marxism, such as Ghana, uh, Ghana. Uh, certain countries have uh, characteristics uh, of a socialist system, such as Great Britain with its uh, socialized medicine. Uh, these, then, are the differences between an outright communist country and countries which adhere to leftist or Marxist uh, uh, principles. In your work with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, uh, what are you advocating? We advocate restoration of diplomatic trade and tourist relations with Cuba. Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. In mid-April of 1963, only seven months before the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald arrived in New Orleans. After staying briefly with relatives, he got a job at the Riley Coffee Company, and he rented an apartment at 4907 Magazine Street in the city's uptown section. During his stay in the city in the next five months, Oswald would engage in activities and make personal contacts that would remain the topics of much discussion a half-century later. While it's still being debated whether the assassination resulted from the act of a deranged lone gunman or from a conspiracy, and whether Cubans, mobsters, renegade CIA agents, or influential members of the industrial military establishment masterminded the killing of the president, everyone agrees that the five months that Oswald spent in New Orleans during the spring and summer of 1963 played a critical role in the assassination. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. This is Justin from Dallas, Homicide Chief Captain Will Fritz of today. The assassination case against Lee Harvey Oswald is cinched. He said flatly, this is the man that killed President Kennedy. 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Come on in, President. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I'm in the facility. I'm just a passenger. President. Shot. Shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. Oswald's ties to New Orleans ran deep. He was born there in October 1939. 
Lee's father, Robert, died two months before he was born, leaving his mother, Marguerite Oswald, to raise Lee, his older brother, Robert, and his older half-brother, John, by herself. During Lee's childhood, Marguerite lived in several homes in and around New Orleans. When Lee was six, she lived briefly in Covington, Louisiana, where Lee first attended school. Marguerite moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area in 1946, where Lee would live for the next six years. In 1952, she moved to New York, then in 1954 back to New Orleans, where she lived on Exchange Place in the French Quarter. Lee attended Bulgaride Junior High and Warren Easton High School each for one year. As soon as Lee Oswald reached the age of 17, he joined the Marine Corps, where he served for more than two and a half years. After leaving the Marines, he traveled to Fort Worth, then to New Orleans, where he caught a Lox freighter bound for Europe. In October of 1959, Lee defected to the Soviet Union, where he would spend the next two and a half years. In April of 1962, with funds provided by the U.S. State Department, he returned to the United States, bringing with him his Russian wife, Marina, and their daughter, June. For the next year, Lee and Marina lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area before his move back to New Orleans. No one knows the reason for Lee's decision to move to New Orleans in April of 1963. While in New Orleans, Lee Oswald formed a New Orleans chapter of the pro-Fidel Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee and was filmed by local television news crews handing out leaflets near the old international trademark at Camp and Common, near what is now the Sheridan Hotel. At one point, Oswald scuffled with local Cuban refugees and was arrested by New Orleans police for disturbing the peace. Oswald's arrest would lead to media coverage and a broadcast debate and an interview by WDSU anchor Bill Slater. On November 22, 1963, when Oswald was linked to the Kennedy assassination, it was WDSU news footage from earlier that summer that gave the nation its first glimpse of the alleged gunman. April 24, 1963, Oswald abruptly left Dallas. In seven months, he would write into the history books, but for now, he was headed for his hometown, New Orleans. He said that he would call when he got a job, and he did, in fact, call in early May and uh, talked to Marina, said he'd gotten a job, that he had a place for them to stay. Marina was elated, very happy, as she hung up the phone and picked up Junie and said, Papa, not but father loves us. And then we loaded up the car the next day and drove to New Orleans. By now, Oswald had found an apartment on Magazine Street. It looked all right uh, and had some old antique kind of furniture in it. And that part was kind of nice, but by evening it was very clear that it was also terribly infested with cockroaches. When they first went into the apartment, he really wanted her to be pleased, and she wasn't that pleased, and I felt his hurt in that. Oswald was about to enter the most mysterious chapter of his short life. New Orleans was seething with intrigue and paranoia, plot and counterplot. The city had welcomed thousands of Cuban exiles who had fled Castro's communism. These were the people whom Fidel Castro called gusanos, the worm. As in Miami, they were fervently anti-communist. In the swamps and bayous, violent paramilitary groups trained to overthrow Castro. I can assure you that this flag will be returned to this brigade in a free Havana. But President Kennedy's failure to topple Fidel Castro was eroding support for him in the Cuban exile community. 
the hard men in the paramilitary groups felt betrayed. In New Orleans, the Cuban enclaves burned with a murderous hatred for the president. In the summer of 1963, nothing could have been more provocative than Oswald's open espousal of Castro's cause. No, sir, I am not a communist, and uh, I think... Oswald defended Castro on local radio and gave a television interview about his own Marxist beliefs. Are you a Marxist? Well, I have uh, studied Marxist philosophy, yes, sir, and also other philosophers. But are you a Marxist? I think you did admit that you consider yourself a Marxist. Well, I would very definitely say that I, uh, I uh, am a Marxist. That is correct. But that, that does not mean, however, that I'm a, a uh, communist. In May 1963, Lee Oswald wrote to America's leading pro-Castro group, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He was offering to start a chapter in New Orleans. The committee discouraged him, but he ignored their advice. From his home address, he designed pro-Castro leaflets and phony membership cards. Then he began handing out the leaflets on the streets of New Orleans. He continued to pretend he was more than just a one-man band. We have had members in this area for several months now. We have decided to feel out the public uh, what they think of our organization, our aims. And for that purpose, we have been distributing literature on the street. Oswald's pro-Castro activity seemed genuine enough, but what happens next is a puzzle. In August of 1963, Lee Oswald approached the leader of an anti-Castro group named Carlos Brungreer. When Oswald came to my store for the first time, he was explaining how he was against Castro. And he was asking in what way he could help us to fight against Castro. He was telling me that he would have been in the Marine Corps, that he had experience in guerrilla warfare, and that he can help us in the guerrilla fight against Castro. The second time that Oswald came to my store was when he brought this guidebook from Marines. He said that this was a present for me to see if this could help me out to fight Castro. The manual that Oswald brought to Ben Greer showed how to make bombs, booby traps, and how to conduct sabotage operations. But a few days later, Carlos Brungreer found Oswald handing out pro-Castro leaflets on Canal Street. So was Oswald for Castro or against Castro? Oswald was definitely playing a role here, or following orders to play that role. But why? It was the same Oswald that has been in my store a few days before offering his service to fight against Castro. And now we were, he was with the sign Viva Fidel and Hands of Cuba. Police were called to the scene where an amateur movie maker filmed the angry Cubans as they surrounded Oswald. This whole movie would be shown over and over on news broadcasts after Oswald's arrest for the assassination as proof that Oswald was a nut and a troublemaker. When we got out of the vehicle and approached the, the crowd, there was about eight or ten Hispanic people uh, that were taunting him, yelling at him, uh, asking him to uh, hand over the papers to them so they could dispose of them. At that time, I get angry, and I was approaching Oswald, trying to punch him in the face. When he saw that I was approaching and he sensed my intention, he put his arm down and he said to me, okay, Carlos, if you want to hit me, hit me. Immediately, I realized that he wanted to appear as a victim. When one of the Cubans took the pro-Castro leaflets and threw them on the ground, the police arrested Oswald and eight Cubans for disturbing the peace. At the police station, Oswald's conduct became even more mysterious. We advised him that the booking procedure, which was a municipal uh, misdemeanor, that he was eligible for posting a bond of $25 in cash or getting a politician to uh, parole him. 
Uh, he said he didn't, did not want either. He wanted to go to jail. We also told him that part of the booking procedure would to be uh, that he would have to be photographed and fingerprinted, which he agreed to. He insisted almost that we fingerprint and photograph him. He seemed to want to uh, let everyone know who he was and what he was doing. He could have avoided it very, very simply by saying, hey, here's my $25, let me go home. What kind of row or double game was Oswald playing here and why? One piece of evidence has continued to raise questions about Oswald's true attitudes toward Cuba and whose side he was really on. The leaflet that Oswald hands out on Canal Street is um, pro-Castro leaflets, hands off Cuba, telling the government to leave it alone, let it stay communist, let Castro alone. And the, the return addresses that are stamped on it is 544 Camp Street. In that same building, uh, there is a private detective agency by a man named Guy Bannister. And Guy Bannister uh, is in, certainly not pro-Castro. He's an ex-FBI agent from New York uh, who is a violently uh, anti-Castro uh, and working to uh, overthrow Castro. If Lee Harvey Oswald is connected to Bannister, uh, then the pro-Castro activity seems to be a sham. So the leaflets Oswald was handing out on Canal Street had the address of 544 Camp Street, the same address that an ex-FBI agent is using as his private detective agency? Hmm. Guy Bannister was secretly involved in the training of Cuban exiles. One of Bannister's comrades in the fight against Castro was a former airline pilot named David Ferry, who had flown many dangerous missions over Cuba, and apparently David Ferry had an earlier link to Lee Oswald. In the 1950s, David Ferry commanded a Civil Air Patrol squadron, but was suspended because he was pushing his right-wing views on the young man in his squadron. Lee Oswald was in that squadron. Pictures have surfaced that show Oswald and Ferry with other squadron members at a Civil Air Patrol barbecue. After the Kennedy assassination, David Ferry denied that he ever knew Lee Harvey Oswald. If David Ferry was with Lee Oswald in the summer of 1963, it could be significant because both Ferry and Guy Bannister were linked to another group that hated President Kennedy, organized crime. Here is G. Robert Blakely, who was Chief Counsel and Staff Director for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. We took very seriously the possibility that organized crime had a hand in the president's death. Uh, the FBI had an illegal electronic surveillance on the major figures of organized crime. Uh, we did a survey of that surveillance. What we did find, and shockingly, uh, is repeated conversations by these people that indicated the depth of their hatred for Kennedy and actual discussions of, of they ought to be killed, they ought to be whacked. No mobster hated the Kennedys more than Carlos Marcello. The mafia boss in New Orleans was a prime target of the Kennedys' administration war on organized crime. In 1961, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, had personally ordered Marcello's arrest and deportation. The godfather was infuriated. Charles Marcello talks about uh, getting, and speaks in Sicilian, getting the stone out of my shoe and talking about getting a nut uh, to kill not the, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was his nemesis, but John Kennedy, who was the, the man behind uh, the, the nemesis. Marcello returned to New Orleans to fight the deportation order. His attorneys hired both Guy Bannister and David Ferry as investigators in the case. For Robert Blakely, who believes the Mafia was involved in the Kennedy assassination, this is the critical link. When you find David Ferry, who is a, uh, an investigator for Carlos Marcello, 
being a boyhood friend to Lee Harvey Oswald and with him that summer and with Carlos Marcello at that very point in time, you have an immediate connection between a man who had the motive, opportunity, and means to kill Kennedy and the man who killed Kennedy. The shame of this thing is that the whole question of Oswald's activity in New Orleans was never properly investigated by officialdom at the beginning. Guy Bannister, the former FBI agent at 544 Camp Street, was never, ever asked by anybody about Lee Harvey Oswald. David Ferry was questioned, but the investigation was dropped very quickly, and the names of neither Bannister nor Ferry are in the Warren report. Simply doesn't mention either of them. If Oswald did have a secret connection to Ferry and Bannister in 1963, the nature of that relationship remains unclear. But in public, Oswald continued to demonstrate for Castro. Well, I think if we take Oswald at the simplest level, what we see he's trying to do is enhance his credentials as a supporter of Castro. One of the ways he's trying to do this is actually work for Castro. Another way he's trying to find out information that would be of use to Castro, and the normal way you find out information is you join the enemy. In the summer of 1963, Oswald wrote an account of his political activity in New Orleans, describing himself as a Marxist, a street agitator, an organizer who had infiltrated Carlos Bringer's anti-Castro organization. By August of 63, Oswald, who had concealed his defection to Russia, was attracting the attention of professional anti-communists. These are officials of Inca, the Information Council of the Americas, an organization which, through its truth tapes and film productions, reaches millions of people in the hemisphere. Ed Butler, as executive vice president, he is in charge of the Inca program and engages in direct personal conflict with communism. Butler and Bringier were to confront Oswald at the studios of WDSU Radio. And now back to conversation carte blanche. Here again, Bill Slatter. Mr. Oswald, as you might imagine, is on the hot seat tonight, and I believe... After the Kennedy assassination, the debate was reenacted on film using the original sound recording of Oswald's voice. Are you or have you been a communist? Well, that, uh, uh, Oswald seemed unaware that his opponents knew all about his defection to Russia. He was about to be exposed live on air. Mr. Butler, about uh, some newspaper clipping to my attention. You did live in Russia for three years? That is correct, and I think those, uh, the fact that I did uh, live for a time in the Soviet Union gives me excellent qualifications to uh, repudiate charges that Cuba and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is communist controlled. I think he was surprised, but again, he handled it, if you listen to the debate, very coolly. And it impeached his credibility. And, um, and yet he managed to turn it to his advantage, which is, I think, uh, shows some aplomb, certainly a lot more than, than most people give him credit for. I would like to know, is it fair play for Cuba committee or fair play for Russia committee? Well, that is, of course, very provocative and... Uh... I question, I don't think it, it requires an answer. Well, I see. Would you say then that the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is not a communist-run organization? We have been investigated from uh, several points of view. That is, points of view of uh, taxes, allegiance, aversion, and so forth. The findings uh, have been, as I say, absolutely zero. Gentlemen, I'm going to have to interrupt. Our time is almost up. Thank you very much, and good evening. The last thing that I remember was Oswald taking out a notebook 
glancing up at me and fixing me with a gaze of hatred and asking for my name and address and phone number and writing it down in the notebook, snapping it shut, looking up, and giving me that Oswald sneer. I went one way and he went the other. That you either are a communist or have been. Could you straighten out that point? The debate ended Oswald's campaign for Castro on the streets of New Orleans. And he withdrew from the public stage. Are you a Marxist? Uh, yes, I am a Marxist. Mr. Butler, about By now, he had been fired from three jobs in the past year. At his local library, he checked out books about the assassination of Huey Long, Mao Zedong's revolution, and John F. Kennedy. It's so obvious that Oswald's activities in the summer of 63 in New Orleans was all part of a role. But when all this came out about Oswald in New Orleans in the summer of 63, all it done was create more confusion in the minds of the American public. Was Oswald for Castro? Was he against Castro? Was he a communist? Was he not a communist? It was all about getting us to look the other way while something was going on right underneath our noses. In late August of 63, Oswald traveled to Dallas, where he met with David Atlee Phillips, who, using the alias Maurice Bishop, served as the principal CIA official in charge of Western Hemisphere clandestine activities. Oswald also met in Dallas in late September with Sylvia Odio, the daughter of a prominent Cuban opponent of Castro. At both meetings, Oswald was accompanied by, or seen by, Cuban exiles supported by the CIA. We're going to hear a lot more about Oswald's ties and connections in New Orleans and his connections with David Ferry and Guy Bannister as we start to talk about the Jim Garrison investigation. But one last thing about Carlos Marcelo that I wanted to hit on before we go tonight. When Carlos Marcelo won his acquittal in the federal court in New Orleans on November 22, 1963, yes, the day of the Kennedy assassination, Sitting at the defense table along with Marcello was one of his attorneys, G. Rao Gill, and none other than David Ferry, an investigator for Gill. Before Marcello's victory path at his West Bank estate got underway, Ferry and two of his companions set off on a mysterious trip to Houston and Galveston the evening of the assassination. From a public telephone booth outside a skating rink, Ferry made and received several calls to individuals connected to Marcello and Ruby. One call he made was to the telephone number of the girlfriend of Lawrence Myers, a Chicago mobster and friend of Marcello's, who visited Jack Ruby in Dallas the next day on Saturday, November 23, 1963. The following day, Jack Ruby murdered Oswald in the parking garage basement of the Dallas Police Headquarters. During one of his legal appeals, Jack Ruby stated that, quote, The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, because these people who have put me in the position I'm in will never let the true facts come above board to the world, end quote. Ruby's statement not only summarizes his murder of Oswald, but also that of many enigmas of the Kennedy assassination. Although no concrete evidence proves that a conspiracy to kill the president originated in New Orleans in that summer of 63, the city of New Orleans' connection to the assassination remains one of its enduring mysteries. We'll see you next week.